welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. This is the celebration of the Feast of Epiphany, which means manifestation or appearance. And this is a traditional reading for that feast. It's the appearance of Christ, but the recognition of Christ as King and Lord. And within the church calendar that is practiced both within Orthodoxy, within Roman Catholicism, within Anglicanism, and other Protestant expressions, you have Christmas that hits, and then following that, you don't then just move on from the birth of Christ to whatever else is going on and then jump back into Easter. But this time period is you have Christmas, and then 12 days later, hence the song that talks about the 12 days of Christmas and the awkward amount of birds that are given as gifts. I'm not sure why anybody would want that many birds. But nonetheless, there's 12 days and then Epiphany hits. And then following that, we have actually the Epiphany Tide or Epiphany Season that runs right up until Lent. So in many ways, we celebrate the birth of Christ and then we have a season in which the readings are going to flesh out what this appearance of God in our midst means. What it reveals about the nature of Christ, the nature of his mission in the world, and the nature of our calling as the people of God. As we then move into the preparation for the great manifestation of God's power and sovereignty and mercy, which is celebrated throughout all of Holy Week and Easter. And so over the coming weeks, that's the journey that we're going to be on. But with this week, we're going to start with, in many ways, the first proclamation of men unaided by angels about who this Christ child is. Where you have an appearance of strange, wealthy scholars from an exotic foreign land to the east. The visitation of the Magi. And so I wanted to just take a moment and look at this this story, story, but pull out a few cultural and biblical insights that might highlight maybe some significance that is found within this story that is easy to pass over because it's become so common. Because we sing Christmas songs about it. And it shows up quite frequently in children's picture books. And so we have an image in our mind of what is happening. But as we look at this story and look at these two characters of, of, well not, two figures in a way. The Magi, which are multiple, and King Herod. And as we understand that, I just want to look at the contrast that is depicted of these two. And how that might speak to us. So starting off we have what should seem like a very odd story. 
but maybe its oddity doesn't seem as odd because of its familiarity. You have wise men from the far off east following a star and bearing great gifts. Now, within the story, there's often misconceptions, and most of you probably maybe know some of these, that, that, that our, our songs are often attributed to three kings from the Orient, you know? The three wise men from the East. What's interesting is that's kind of been so entrenched, and it's been there for quite a long while, even though there's no mention of the number three. We don't know how many magi there are. And there's definitely no mention of royalty. There are no kings. But there's an interesting reason why this showed up within Christian tradition and just the language and vernacular and the songs and everything else that we sing. It's because very early on, as the early Christians of Jewish descent read of this story, of this event that occurred in the history of the life of Christ, they immediately had their minds drawn to Psalm 72. Now, Psalm 72 is a declaration of praise of this great king that was going to bring peace and justice, joy to the sorrowful, but also tear down the strong and the oppressors. And in Psalm 72, right in the middle of it, there's the, these words. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And then he says, may the kings of Tar- Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba And Seba, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And so within this, because there were three gifts mentioned and tying to this, there was this idea that they were these, they connected the Magi's, these three kings that were spoken of in Psalm 72. Kings from the east. Actually, Sheba is, is... Ethiopia. And actually, the different ethnic representations in 72 show up in our depictions of the three wise men sometimes, and the three kings. But instead, we don't have that directly. But what we do see is that there is a clear connection of what's happening here of a declaration that Jesus is this one that King David wrote poetically about in Psalm 72. But Matthew uses the Greek word magos, which then became magi. What the magos were, were a a group. It often is used to speak about magicians or astrologers. They were scholars, usually from the eastern pagan countries, that would study the stars, interpret the signs. Likely, these magi that came, especially since they were coming from the east, would have been coming from the area that is 
commonly known today, or not commonly known, it is today, Iraq and Iran. The former Babylonian Empire. And coming from there, these Magi would have most likely been scholars of Zoroastrianism. A, uh, an ancient Middle Eastern belief system. A system that was interesting in that it was, well, apart from the Jewish faith, actually had a semblance of monotheism and held to this monotheistic idea of a great and high divine God. And so these magi would have been expert astronomers. The difference is, is back then, astronomy and astrology were not kept as two separate things, but held together. And we know from that region that they had mapped out, well before the first century, all of the movements of the planets and the stars. But the reason they had done that is because they believed that the stars and the planets all conveyed different ideas. They predicted things and they would, would declare realities, divine realities that were occurring. But we also know that these magi would have been very familiar with the Jewish texts. Because modern day Iraq and Iran, Persia, would have been where the Jews would have been taken in exile during the Babylonian captivity. And so these men who are clearly wealthy and have the ability and the luxury to be reading the stars and traveling great distances would have had the luxury and the education to also study the Jewish texts that would have been left behind when the Jews were there during the Babylonian captivity. So whenever you read what is happening here, it's actually not very abnormal for these magi. To see a sign in the heavens and then interpret that sign as meaning something significant was happening right now on earth. There's a lot of speculation about what the star is. I honestly don't think it matters that much. But there is one that is interesting to me. I I think that it's either a a, a divine manifestation, a, a, a miraculous sign that God put forth, but the, there is actually, interestingly, when you study the movements of the planets and the stars, that right around 7 BC, right around when the time that Christ would have born, been born, you had an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn that perfectly aligned and were in that would have caused an all of a sudden bright, what would have looked like a star to occur. And we know from Persian Astronomy in that region during that time, Jupiter was considered the royal planet. And there are writings in which Saturn was equated to the people of the Hebrews. So it would have made sense that if God so perfectly orchestrated that, that these Gentile pagan astronomers would have saw that and knew from the writings that they had read that were left behind by the Jews that this must mean that that king that they keep speaking about 
and their prophets has arrived. But either way, what is really interesting in this story is that we see at this beginning of the gospel narrative of God's great act among the people that God met these pagans where they were at and drew them into his great redemptive story. Using what they would have been seeking even in the midst of their false religion. Their pagan idolatry. So we have these magi, they go to the king Herod to inquire where this new king would be. And even though they were knowledgeable of the Jewish scriptures and they were scholars of the heavens and the signs, they were ignorant of King Herod and his narcissism and his ambitions. For they assumed King Herod being a Jewish king, a Jew himself, would have been already aware of this occurrence and celebrating the arrival of the great hope, the Messiah, King of God. When they arrive, expecting Herod to be excited about this news, they say something that's pretty interesting. Two things. They say, where is the king of the Jews? And then they say, we have come to worship you. What are these pagan Gentiles? Likely Zoroastrian, so having a sense of a monotheistic God. All of a sudden arrive at a place where the king of the Jews is also one that they have come to worship. And then after the Jewish scholars that Herod gathered around himself, told him where the prophets had spoke that the Messiah was to be born, they immediately left, likely overhearing these words, and they went to find Jesus. And as you know in the story, They presented him with gifts, which is often what our emphasis is whenever we tell this story and look at this story or sing about this story in our songs during Christmas time. I think what's more striking than foreigners coming to a new, newly coronated king that they believe is going to be king and offering gifts, which is quite common, is the fact that it says that then they actually did fall on their face worshipped this child. This would have been shocking to any first century Jewish listener. This is how the life, the epiphany, the revelation of Christ would begin. You would have pagan Gentiles their practices that they practice this astrology and astronomy and divining of all the different signs is directly and clearly condemned within the law of Moses. And yet they are the first to publicly acknowledge Jesus for who he was. That he was the promised Messiah King and then worshipped him as if he was God incarnate. 
Gentiles. Before sweet old devout faithful Simeon. Coming from the former land of the Jewish exile. The land of the great evil oppressor Babylon. To worship this child and to declare him to be And it's interesting because we see the story begin this way. And then 30 some odd years later, you would have Gentiles say the exact same thing. The king of the Jews. But this time in mockery. Putting a placard above him as he hung on a cross. And these would be the last Gentiles to acknowledge his nature, giving him adoration and worship until after the horrors of that cross. And Jesus died. And you had a Gentile, a Roman soldier, standing at the foot of the cross saying the worshipful words, surely this man is the Son of God. And then we have a contrast. We have the seemingly devout Jewish King Herod. And as much as we look back as Christians on the horrors of Herod, if you look in the first century and and the, the decades leading up of his rule, he appeared quite favorable to his people, the Jews. It appeared that he was using Roman wealth and power to be favorable to his own people. Remember, it was was Herod doing this great work to rebuild and expand God's temple. That God might be shown to be great. The Jewish religion would be seen as superior. We have records and accounts of of King Herod selling off his own gold during one of the great famines so that he could feed the Jewish people. And he was no secular leader because he calls around him constantly a, a, a group of all of the top religious scholars and leaders of the day. What's also really interesting is Herod also believed the scriptures. And like the Magi, he believed this child to be the promised Messiah. That's why he asked the religious scholars where this Christ was supposed to be born. And even said that He wanted to know because he wanted to worship him. Acknowledging that he did believe that this child that was born was the promised Christ, the prophesied Messiah. But the thing is, is King Herod would have known, as many of the messianic passages of the old, including Psalm 72, would speak 
is that not only would foreign kings bring gifts and tributes to this Messiah, but as Psalm 72 says, that all kings, including Herod, would fall before him. And if we read on from this story, you'll see that his intentions were never to go before this Messiah King child and to worship him, but instead to find out where he was, to silence and to kill him. So we have this contrast. Pagan Gentiles using practices condemned by the law coming from the land of the great evil empire Babylon, chosen by God to follow the little light, just a little bit of light that they could discern. And they fall on their face in worship upon encountering the promised Messiah, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God in our midst. And then you have the Jewish king surrounding himself with religious scholars and leaders, appearing to be devout and concerned about the prominence of his people's religion and the well-being of God's people, even accepting the good news that God's promises are being fulfilled and yet violently rejects it because the epiphany of Jesus as the true Messiah Kings means that Herod will need to cede his throne, lay down his ground, and bow down before the true king. All in the midst of this stark contrast, you have the character Jesus. God, in the midst of rebellious humanity, in the midst of our violence, injustice, suffering, and death, as a vulnerable little child. Yet this royal messianic child represents the only hope for humanity. Representing that God is taking back his throne and dealing with evil, dealing with injustice, dealing with death, dealing with it all once and for all. But also this child, this hope, represents the greatest threat to our endemic desires. It's the greatest threat for all of our own desire of dominion to maintain our place on our tiny thrones and hold on to our self-fashioned crowns. And so as we see this story in the contrast of these characters, it's always valuable to ask who we are in this story. The Magi, Herod. And I honestly think that all of us are a little bit of both. If we are in Christ, like the Magi, we have been met wherever we were. With what little knowledge and the level of ignorance that we carried with us, nonetheless, he drew us and we learned along the way and are still learning along, along the way. But yet, by God's grace in the presence of Christ, we're brought to a place of recognizing that he is the true king. He is the true Lord. That he is God in our midst. All of us bringing whatever gifts that we might carry to present before him. 
but also recognizing that he is in no need of any of the gifts that we can bring. Like the Magi. I'm not quite sure what an infant's going to do with frankincense, but not a whole lot. But in so doing, fall before him in worship, laying aside our previous aspirations, expectations, understandings, and everything else in the face of God in our midst, the promised Messiah King. But also, I think we all retain some Herod. Laboring maybe to bring God's prominence and recognition within the world. Building great temples. Building for God's honor. Maybe showing acts of compassion and concern for our people. Holding a belief in the scriptures. Even acknowledging the fulfillment of God's promises, the gospel. And yet lashing out when Jesus and his gospel threatens our own agendas. Our sense of self-rule and autonomy. Saying publicly, maybe even believing that we want to find him to worship him, but secretly wanting to silence him because his rule threatens ours. I say that I think there's both within us because similar to the contrast between the Magi and Herod, Scripture says we all have a battle within us between the old and the new self. All who are in Christ have Christ in them, working to free us from the idolatry, working to free us from the fall of Adam, the desire to be our own gods, to liberate us from the shackles and the hells that we thought was going to be our liberation. But we also still have a little Adam left in us. We all have little thrones and shabby crowns that we're still holding on to. May not even know it. But when the gospel threatens it, some shocking things can rise out. But also as Christians... Like the Magi, we have encountered Christ falling down in worship, proclaiming him to be king. At war with him. But there's even good news in that, because if you jump ahead 30 years or so within this story, we see that Herod got what he wanted. The problem was Herod was, by that point, a little bit too dead to see it. Because we have Jesus on the cross. A hellish throne of torment. Not received as king, but mocked as king of the Jews with a crown of thorns forced upon his head. Instead of worship and adoration... He received mockery and slander. Instead of expensive gifts, he received beatings, rejection, spit at, stripped even of his clothes. There's no light 
now appearing, no star appearing in the night sky. But instead, the great morning star, our sun, was blocked out. So the day became shrouded in darkness as if it were night. The scripture tells us that this was not just what Herod wanted or his legs. Nor was it just the Roman or Jewish ruler's will, but it says that it was the sin of all humanity. The rebellious desire of all of Adam's children. To squash this hope, because it was a hope that threatened our own self-rule. But thanks be to God. Because Jesus was willing to take upon himself the violence of our rebellious desire for autonomy and godlike sovereignty in order to give us back grace and mercy. To offer us forgiveness and the right to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. That he received that rebellious backlash welled up in the heart of every human. Our sinful rebellion. That we might receive grace upon grace. To receive mercy. Not because we have fully vacated our self-crafted thrones. But grace and, more, grace and mercy in spite of the fact that we still at times hold on to that old rickety throne. Thrones that through Christ's sovereignty, his victory, and his grace, that he himself is tearing down to be cast in the fire, even as we at times push back and still try to hold on to those thrones. Because not only is he Lord, not only is he king, not only is he a sovereign who will share his rule with no one, He's also our gracious and merciful Savior who will free us not only from the evils and the injustice, the pain and the sickness that we have caused in this world, but also save us from the evil that is still stuck within our own heart. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affection and bound my soul.